All right, keep your finger in James chapter 3 this morning. That is our text for today. Before we look at the text, though, I've got a question for you. Uh, You ever hear about those people who are cleaning out their attic or, you know, some other part of their house and they come across some artifact or valuable, like, piece of memorabilia that that they're able to sell for, like, an exorbitant sum of money? You ever hear about those people? Uh, a while back, I was reading about this guy in Pennsylvania who was at a thrift store, and he saw a frame that he really liked. There was a picture. He's like, I don't really care about the picture. I just want the frame. So he bought it for four bucks, I think, and he went back to his house. And in the process of separating the picture from the frame, he uncovered one of the original prints of the Declaration of Independence that was later sold for like $8.1 million dollars. Uh, There was another guy who was cleaning out his attic, and he found a violin that had been salvaged from the wreck of the Titanic that he was able to sell for over a million dollars as well. Now, when you hear about these things, what do you think? I got to go check my attic, see, (laughs) see what's up there, right? So let's pretend, right, that we do just that. And we go up into our attic, we're poking around in the dusty corners, and all of a sudden we find like a canvas that's been rolled up, and we unravel that thing, and lo and behold, from your professional perspective, you think you found the work of some famous artist, like uh, a Rembrandt, let's say. And you say, this is my lucky day, and you waltz down to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and you say, hey, I've got this painting, can you guys cut me a check for, I don't know, 10 mil? What do you think? Are they going to write you that check? No. What are they going to do? They're going to authenticate it. Right? They're going to run all sorts of tests to determine if the claim that you are making is, in fact, true. They're going to look at the brush strokes of Rembrandt. They might test the paint or the canvas to see if it dates to that era in history. And only then will you get a check or them saying, hey, this would be nice on the fridge, right? So we do this with all sorts of things. If you are out west and you find some gold-looking shiny substance on the ground, you just can't take that to the jeweler and say, hey, what's the rate of gold these days? No, they want to check, is this fool's gold, right? You might claim to be a certified genius, but I want to see the score you got on your IQ test, Famously, I already mentioned the Titanic, but famously, it was considered to be unsinkable until it was met with the reality of an iceberg, right? Here's the point of this illustration this morning. We are familiar with the concept of people making claims and then having to authenticate them. This isn't just a secular idea. The Bible does this as well. Uh, You may remember from maybe a month or so ago in Sunday school, we considered perhaps the most sobering series of tests that the Bible describes in 1 John when we are just asked to put our faith to the test. When John says, he asks a series of questions, do you love the world? Do you obey God's commandments? Do you love other people? If your answer to those questions is no, I, I actually, I really do love the world. I, I hate my brother. I, I don't obey God's commandments. Then despite the claims you make, John would say, you don't know God. 
James does something similar in chapter 2 of this epistle when he says that faith without works is dead. There are people who might affirm through true things about God. James even says that demons can say orthodox things about God. They believe that God is one. James says, thumbs up. But that's not enough. Right? True faith produces works. Jesus himself says that you're going to know people by their fruits. We're familiar with this concept that claims need to be authenticated. And so here in our text this morning, James is going to put forward another test to stack our lives up against, and that's found in verse 13, where he begins with this question, who is wise and understanding among you? With that question, James is essentially asking, would you claim to be a wise person? More specifically, and I'll have it on the screen for you here, James is going to set two types of wisdom in contrast to one another and leave us to discern which kind of wisdom we possess. Now, I think all of us hope that we possess what James calls wisdom from above, this wisdom from God. We read the scriptures. We know wisdom is a good attribute to possess. Proverbs says that blessed is the one who finds wisdom. We know step one in wisdom is to fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. When you look at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they hold wisdom in high regard. They say, this is more valuable than gold. This is more powerful than armies. excuse me, weapons of war. Well, it certainly seems that the expectation of the scriptures is that believers be pursuing wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 says that the Lord gives wisdom. And the question for us this morning then is how do we know if we possess this wisdom from above? How do we know if we have wisdom from God? And James is going to help us discern that. I think a lot of times we treat wisdom as kind of this nebulous concept. It's very difficult to define or even spot in someone else, but James takes all the guesswork out of it. He says this isn't a mystery to know whether or not you possess wisdom from God. I'll just describe what it looks like. I'll give you a list of wisdom from above, and you're able to stack your life up against it and say, yes or no, I possess this. You just got to love how practical James is we should be able to tell pretty easily what verse 13 asks. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Much like James already did in the previous chapter with faith, saying, you claim to have faith, prove it. He does the same here with wisdom. You claim to be a wise and understanding person, show me. Show me by your good conduct, first of all. And we're out of the gate just confronted with this reality that wisdom from above produces good conduct, good works. Uh, Unfortunately, the text doesn't really elaborate on what that good conduct is. Commentators have helped me just uh, realize, though, that one of the things that James is just revealing to us in a very general sense is that wisdom is not something that is just kind of confined to your head. 
It's not just something that exists up in here and you can discern whether or not someone is wise. Wisdom manifests itself in actions. It's similar to what Jesus said about the tongue. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, so too, what is contained in your head and heart, you are going to act. And your actions are going to reveal, hey, do I possess wisdom from above? We're introduced to another component of this wisdom from above in verse 13. And we're told that we're supposed to show our works in the meekness of wisdom. Other translations, instead of the word meek here, offer humble or gentle. This seems to be one of the defining characteristics of wisdom from above, right? Anyone can do good works. Anyone can pick up a piece of trash when someone is looking at you at church, right? But there is a component of wisdom that is meek, that is humble, that doesn't need to be the center of attention that says, this isn't about me. I'm not doing this to advance myself. There's very much that fear of the Lord component where a person who possesses God's wisdom first fears God and realizes life isn't even about me. I'm just doing this for the Lord. In fact, a truly wise person might be uncomfortable if pressed to give an example of the good works that they do. They're humble. And so I think in beginning to answer this question on the screen here, we could just start by asking ourselves the question, does my life produce good works? Am I humble? I hope it's clear that James is saying that we don't discern wisdom by years of experience, by positions you hold, by education. James says wisdom is demonstrated by the actions your life produces. There is the potential, though, that our works could portray a different reality than possessing this wisdom from above, and that's found in verses 14 to 16. James says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In these series of verses, we are introduced to the defining characteristics of what James calls earthly wisdom. There's two characteristics, the first of which you can see on the screen there. Earthly wisdom is marked by bitter jealousy. Now, perhaps when you hear that word jealousy, you think of, oh, you have this, I want it. Uh, That seems to be more the definition of envy. Jealousy here is rather feeling threatened when someone appears to be close to attaining what you want or what you have. So let's just pretend you hold a position and you see an up-and-coming person who is equally skilled and talented and they seem to be gunning for your job, if you will. There's that threatened response there. There's a jealousy that you have to guard what is yours. I think a good word for jealousy here is perhaps rivalry. There is conflict and strife between you and someone else. You're competing with them for an advantage. And here it is described in James as bitter. 
It's deep-rooted. There's this harsh feeling, this animosity towards people, this bitter jealousy. In the Old Testament, this jealousy is described, or rather portrayed, in, the New, in, in uh, Joseph's life. You remember Joseph? He was one of the youngest members of his family, and yet dad's favorite. He has a couple of dreams which reveal Joseph to be the center of attention while everyone else bows before him. And upon discovering about these dreams, the brothers are just jealous of Joseph. The text even says a little bit earlier, they can't even speak peaceably to him. And it's this jealousy that leads them to, you know, throw Joseph into the pit, sell him off into slavery. In the New Testament, jealousy is described pretty well for us in the book of Acts, when Paul is going city to city bringing the gospel, and the Jews at first reject it, So Paul turns to the Gentiles, and all of a sudden, people are getting saved in the masses, and the Jews, even though they rejected the gospel, they get jealous that all of these Gentiles are now listening to Paul, and they cause strife and turmoil, and they raise up mobs and riots to drown out what Paul is doing here. Jealousy is a terrible thing. And then there is selfish ambition. Right, this describes the attitude of a person whose whole aim in life is to advance themselves. And they don't care at what cost their advancement happens. They will step on anyone they need to to get to the top. They will manipulate whoever they need to. Every single question or every single decision that they make is made with this question in mind. How does this benefit me? I think this is embodied pretty well if we want another biblical example of this in King Ahab looking out and seeing Naboth's vineyard. And he says, I need that vineyard. And his wife puts this plan together in which Naboth is actually killed just so that Ahab can get a vineyard. Talk about selfish ambition. This is someone who says, I don't care at what cost I get this. I'm doing it. Obviously, I'm the most important person here. Everything revolves around me. What I set out to do happens. And what is James' evaluation of a person who possesses these attributes? Look at the end of verse 14. Do not boast and be false to the truth. If you claim to be wise, but in your heart you possess jealousy, if you are only in it for yourself, James says, you're a liar. Don't run around proclaiming how awesome you are if you're selfish, if you're jealous. These are not the mark of a person who has received wisdom from God. In fact, the opposite is true, right? Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. How's that for a sobering thought? When these things are present in our life, we have a lot in common with the world, with demons even. This is not the mark of someone who has the Spirit of God inside of them. If we really stopped and think, thought about it, I'm sure all of us would say jealousy, selfish ambition, they're sins. Yes, I agree. But I, I wonder if they fall in that category of what is commonly called the acceptable sins. 
right? You know, certainly I would never murder someone, but jealous? Yeah. Uh, I feel a little threatened by people. Uh, I can treat people with a cold shoulder who I think are rivals of mine. No, I would never commit adultery, but selfish ambition? Yeah, I, I do make every decision in my life with me at the center of it. I, I do make sure that I orchestrate circumstances in such a way that I always come out on top. James very clearly articulates for us that these attributes do not find their origin in God. They do not come from him. This is the way the world thinks. This is the norm of every unsaved person that you rub shoulders with in the world. This wisdom is actually demonic. It, it shares something in common with demons. Its origin is demonic. And what do these attributes produce? What is the fruit of jealousy and selfish ambition? Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Disorder, vile practices follow people who are jealous, who are selfish. Think about it. Nothing is off limits for them. That they will do whatever they want in accomplishing their goal to gain any advantage they can. Unity is the very last thing on their mind. Can we just take a second here and evaluate our own lives? And just ask ourselves the question, am I a jealous person? Now, if we went down to nursery right now, it'd be pretty easy to spot in the life of a two-year-old who's got this pile of toys in front of him and someone else tries to grab it and he says, no. Maybe a little bit harder to spot in adults, but could I just suggest some ways that jealousy manifests itself in our hearts? Do you have rivalries with other people? Have you identified someone in your workplace, someone in your friend group, someone here at church that you feel threatened by? Maybe you look at their gifts, their charisma, their potential, and you think to yourself, I gotta watch out for that person or else they're gonna surpass me and the you know, scope of ministry that I have. Are you always trying to keep tabs on this person so you know that what they're up to and you can always just kind of keep an eye on them? Are you always trying to one-up someone else so that you can prove, hey, I am better? Do you disparage people in conversations? When you're talking about your rival, if I could put it that way, are you unkind? Do you intentionally put them down? so that you can maintain your superiority, so that you can be put in a good light? Have you become cynical of other people? Have you begun to see people do even good things, works of the Spirit of God inside of them, and you conclude to yourself, they're just doing that so that they can get attention? Could I just suggest that that is the adult version of jealousy? How about this question? Is the aim of your life to advance yourself? Does everything revolve around you? Do you make decisions without ever considering how it might affect someone else? Do you always have to be recognized publicly for your work? Are you the hero of every story? How about this one? Are you offended when people overlook you? Do you get upset 
when no one seeks your opinion? My opinion is the most valuable in the room. Why didn't you ask me? Do, do you get upset when people overlook you? When you don't get the invite? When you're left out? I, I think that'd be a mark of someone who possesses that selfish ambition. And can I be transparent with you this morning that some of these examples that I've listed aren't all that hypothetical? Because I've come to the realization that the wisdom from above is not as much a part of my life as I would like to admit. And I look at my heart and I see selfish ambition. I see jealousy. And I've spent some devotional time in James chapter 3 because the Lord has been working with me about this text and just showing me, man, maybe this wisdom, this earthly wisdom is a bigger part of my life than I ever gave credit for. Unless you think that this is something that just James talks about. Maybe he's just keying in on this one idea, and the rest of the scriptures have no bearing on this. That couldn't be further from the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church, and he says, guys, I I can't even give you the meat of the word. I still have to feed you milk. Do you know why? Because jealousy and strife exists among you. In Galatians chapter 5, the passage of scripture we normally think about the fruits of the Spirit, there's actually another list that is in Galatians chapter 5 that is the fruits or the works of the flesh. And on that list, jealousy and rivalry are listed. These are manifestations of the flesh at work inside of you. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. And the text goes on to explain that Jesus is the perfect example of humility. Jesus did not cling tightly to his deity and say, everyone will worship me. He became the servant of all. He humbled himself. To to be selfish is really the complete opposite of true Christ-likeness. And as I said earlier, we have our own metrics for wisdom sometimes. Years of experience, leadership positions, education. These are not the metrics that the scripture has. It says, let me see your life. You might think you're a wise person, but if jealousy and selfish ambition exist in your heart, we know what James would conclude. Certainly do not possess the wisdom from above. And thankfully, James does give us a description of what this wisdom from above does look like. Let's start in verse 17. We'll read through and then come back to it. We read, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We'll begin with this um, attribute of purity. Wisdom from above is pure. This describes a moral or an ethical purity, something that is not tainted by sin, it is not enticed by secular culture and what the world has to offer. We might say that wisdom from above strives to be above reproach. It puts distance between itself and the world. It doesn't dwell on worldly or impure things. It doesn't laugh or speak about secular things. When given a choice between right and wrong, wisdom from above, it's a no-brainer. They choose the pure choice, what pleases God. How about this? Peaceable. Wisdom from above is peaceable. 
It makes peace with people. It doesn't poke the bear or stir the hornet's nest, so to speak. It's very reminiscent of what Romans says about we should be as much as possible striving for peace with other people. The burden of peacefulness falls on us. How about gentle? Wisdom from above is mild-mannered. It is kind and compassionate. Where, where earthly wisdom is consumed with self-interest, wisdom from above shows deference to other people. It's very difficult to make a gentle person impatient. It's reminiscent of the description of Jesus that he used to describe himself as gentle and lowly. That's what wisdom from above is like. How about this one? Wisdom from above is open to reason. Wisdom listens to other people. It it can be persuaded of other people's opinions. It doesn't try to be the loudest person in the room, shouting down other people's ideas, making fun of people. It goes in with a spirit of humility and says, you know what, I'm not the only person here who has a good idea. I'm open to the reason of other people. I'm willing to defer and to be persuaded if necessary. Full of mercy and good fruits. Uh, I saw a commentator who lumped those two things together. So when you hear good fruits, you might think of the fruits of the Spirit. I think that's a good place to perhaps consider. Maybe you think of what James had just said prior to this, that wisdom from above has those good works. I think that's possible as well. But full of mercy. Uh, A person who possesses this wisdom from above is great at showing mercy to people who are underprivileged, overlooked. One commentator said, a person with this wisdom can show mercy because he knows he has received great mercy. How about this one? Wisdom from above is impartial. This kind of wisdom is not easily influenced by someone's wealth, by someone's status, right? James talks about partiality as well when he says the rich person walks into your church and you give him the best seat there. The poor person comes in and you say, hey, why don't you sit at my feet? That's not wisdom from above. Uh, Wisdom from above looks at all people and says, everyone has equal value. You guys are all image bearers. I am not going to make decisions based off of what you can do for me. Sincere. Wisdom from above isn't hypocritical. It doesn't put on a show in public, look at me, I'm awesome. It's not the Pharisee who prays in the middle of the room with his hands outstretched, who gives in these great demonstrations of wealth. This is a person who is just the same person he is in public as he is in private. They doesn't try to manipulate other people or deal in underhanded ways. This wisdom from above is honest. It speaks in a way that is truthful. It genuinely is interested in other people. And what is the outcome when this type of wisdom is practiced? Well, verse 18 contains the answer to that question. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If verse 16 describes the outcome of earthly wisdom, that there is disorder in every vile practice, then verse 18 describes the outcome of wisdom from above, 
one commentator kind of put it like this. He said, wisdom produces peace, and that peace provides the perfect environment for righteousness to flourish. Think about this. When wisdom from above is operating in our lives, when we are letting the Spirit of God dictate the decisions we make, the wisdom that we are portraying, there's going to be peace. There's going to be fertile ground for good works to happen. And think about this. If we are all practicing this wisdom from above, if we are all peacemakers, then what an awesome opportunity for us to gather in a large setting like this and for these good works to really take off rather than being marked by strife and disorder and vile practice. If we take this charge personally, this is going to be a place of rest, of peace, of deference, of showing humility and love to one another. Now, perhaps as we've worked through this list together, perhaps there's a couple of attributes that you're sitting there thinking to yourself, man, I certainly could improve in a couple of these key areas. Maybe you've already considered the wisdom that is earthly, that is jealous, that is selfish, and you're thinking, oh man, that is way too present in my life. And you're left asking the question, how do I obtain this wisdom from above? God has impressed upon me this morning that I'm lacking. How do I gain this wisdom? Well, James also has the answer to that question. Turn back to James chapter 1, where we read this in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What an awesome promise. James is telling us here this morning, if you lack the wisdom that is described for us in chapter 3, simply ask God and do it in faith. Let me ask you this. Let's say that you ask God for this wisdom. What would you expect to be different in your life? How do you think you're going to know if you've actually received the wisdom that is promised to you? Do you think that when you raise your head after praying that prayer, you're all of a sudden going to be able to get an A on a test instead of a B? Is that the wisdom that comes from God? Well, I would argue, just based off of the text, that when we ask God for wisdom, what's going to happen is that we're going to have the grace to be able to practice the kind of wisdom that is described for us, that is this wisdom from above. God has already given us the answer, and He's going to be able to help us achieve this wisdom from above. So I want you as we conclude this morning, to just think about a couple of case studies. I know this is a little unusual, but I'm just going to put some case studies before you, and I want you to think about how wisdom from above might respond in this setting. So, first of all, you have a coworker or a friend that you are anticipating having a difficult conversation with. And this person is prone to come unglued when they feel attacked, 
when they feel threatened. And, and you already know that this conversation has the potential to go there, right? There, there's gonna be some sort of confrontation. It could be unpleasant or awkward. And so you go into this conversation thinking about it and you, and you just pause and say, Lord, would you give me wisdom to navigate this conversation in a way that demonstrates wisdom from above? Lord, Lord I need wisdom here, this is beyond me. Can you help me to navigate this conversation well? Well, well, what would you expect, given the context that I just described for you? You, you already know the answer. You, you already know the wise choice here, right? If you're looking at this list and anticipating this conversation, you know that wisdom from above is peaceable. You, you don't go into a conversation like this attacking someone, trying to rile them up. You say... I'm going to choose my words very carefully here. I'm going to behave in a way that is truly wise. Perhaps you're also thinking about open to reason, right? Maybe it's possible that you are going into this conversation not knowing all the facts. And so you come in and you start making these uh, accusations and you're confronting someone and come to find out you don't know everything about the story. And, and there's more to this than you realize. Well, a person who is truly wise is open to reason. They can listen to other people. How about this for another case study? Let's say on a Wednesday night, we are breaking out into our small groups for prayer, and you find yourself in the pastor's prayer group. And you're thinking to yourself, man, this is my chance. I get to put on this incredibly awesome prayer that is verbose, and I'm talking about these theological terms and quoting scriptures, and this is my opportunity to distinguish myself from average Joe next to me to show the pastor, hey, I know how to pray. Listen to me. And immediately, you're just confronted with another attribute of wisdom, that it's impartial, that, that you're not concerned who is in your prayer group, that doesn't dictate the way you make decisions. You're sincere. You're not a hypocrite. You just pray. This is wisdom from above in action here. How about this? Here's a third one. Let's say your boss comes up to you one day or you're on the internet and you see, you know, an ad flashing that says, you know, hey, get, you know, X amount of income you know, and, and let's, let's say your boss is telling you about this, and he says, hey, I got some work for you if you want to do it on the side. Don't ask too many questions about it. Just, uh, you know, make sure it gets done, and we won't actually put this on the books. I'll just give you some cash for your efforts here. Well, you've got enough information just in the way that he phrased that, and he, you know, he came and talked to you personally about it after hours that you're like, you know what, I, I don't think that what's going on here is maybe above board ethically. And you make the wise choice that is just, hey, you know what? I've made it a practice in my life to do things that are pure, that are ethical, that, that please God. So rather than having this earthly wisdom that looks for every opportunity to advance myself and sees this as a, a huge padding of your pocketbook, you say, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna exercise this wisdom from above that is pure, right? And this is just three of 
I'm sure hundreds, if not thousands of decisions that we are going to make over the course of our life where we are confronted with ways of doing things and we seek God's wisdom. And rather than just waiting there, waiting for like a lightning bolt to strike you and go, I know the right answer. We just look at James and make decisions based off of the framework that is uh, described for us here. James gives us the description of what God's wisdom looks like. We know how to access it. It's simply prayer. Ask God for this, and he will give to all men liberally, and he won't upbraid you for it. You won't be chastised for praying for wisdom. I really appreciate this passage of Scripture because wisdom, what can often be a vague concept, is made crystal clear here for us. We know what it looks like. We know how, it, how to evidence it in our lives. Let's boldly ask God, Lord, I've had to pray this. Rivalries are too much a part of my life, God. Please put this to death in me. Lord, other situations, please help me to practice this wisdom from above. And as we do this, we should expect there to be peace and an environment in which good works can flourish. I hope you were challenged by this this morning. Really, this is the product of something that God has had to do in my life. And I hope that we can just be collectively working towards this wisdom from above. Let's close in prayer. Lord, again, thank you for the directness of your word this morning, the way in which it, as Hebrews says, pierces and divides and it exposes even the thoughts and intents of our heart. I know you have confronted me already, Lord, and, I, and I'm still working on this. Would you please uh, just collectively here at Grace Bible Church begin to fill us with this wisdom from above that we'd be able to practice true wisdom and godliness, and that our lives would be characterized by it. We need you, Lord. We love you. We're so grateful for your word, even when it pricks us. And it's in Christ's name we pray.